Before we start today's episode, I want to mention that today's content deals with suicide, and we might even make jokes about it. So if that is a trigger warning for you, we completely respect if you choose to move on to another episode. If you would like to simply know the time at which that subject matter is discussed, please see the show notes, and we should provide a link where you can listen beyond that portion of the show. The DL respects. I have a thirst for learning, I could say. I have a thirst for red wine. Bienvenue! Welcome in and welcome to the DL Presents Babylon Berlin. This is a deep dive companion podcast to the German television series Babylon Berlin. I'm Leslie Leek, and I'm joined, as always, by a man who likes to shake it in a banana skirt and prefers the yellow candies at the Mocha FD Cafe, Dan Finner. Bienvenue! Each episode of the podcast will cover one episode of the show. We'll give you the down low on the plot, characters, and the history. But be warned, The DL Presents is not for the languid of mind or the young in age, because our podcast and the media it covers are BAFA. By adults and for adults. But if you don't mind showgirls wearing nipple tassels and a banana skirt, or seeing grown men covered head to toe in human fecal matter, you might be ready to get the DL. Drink your libations. And don your lederhosen. Dainty lace. Dryer lint. Let's dive in. Leslie, episode two of Babylon Berlin is, if not my favorite episode, at least among my favorite episodes. I've watched it probably six or seven times at this point, in part because it has the beautiful music video sequence for Zu Ascht, Zu Stab, which we'll talk about a lot this episode, but also because episode two brings to bear so many of the things that were promised in episode one. I feel like episode one and two run into each other nicely. So if you out there listening are like Leslie and I, I think we just watched episode one and then straight into two immediately. And it flows so nicely. Yeah, absolutely. Episode two is hands down my favorite episode of season one. They had to lay down a lot of exposition in episode one. And then in episode two, they give you the hook. Yeah. So what's in store for folks today? As with every episode, first we're going to dive into the point-by-point synopsis of episode two for Babylon Berlin, and then we'll follow that up with a little more context for the history of the show. I think on today's episode, you're going to give us some background on the Russian history that pertains very much so to this episode's plot. Then in the third chapter of the podcast, third section, we're going to go into the little tantalizing tidbits or lekrbisen from today's episode, which includes, of course, prostitution and the original nouveau Retro hit German song Zu Ost Zu Staub. Zu Ost Zu Staub. <laughs> you say you you say that to your your living lover Cam all the time. Yeah, I just scream it in the shower when we're driving down the road when we're making food. Oh my god, that's so cute. It's so catchy, and I well. In the the other problem is I don't know any of the other words. Dan, do you hear those drums? Do you know what that means? Does it mean it's time to hike up our pantaloons and step waist deep into a giant wooden barrel full of grapes? Not quite, but it does mean that it's time to dive into the plot synopsis of episode two. Episode two opens with the Armenian's henchman, this fellow we see dressed in like a priest outfit, visiting Koenig in his prison cell. 
It's a very quick scene. We see him whisper something in Koenig's ear. We don't get to know what he says to him, but it definitely shakes Koenig to its core. Um, they zoom out with Koenig laying on the ground. We don't know what goes on between the priest and Koenig, but it's obvious that it scared the living daylights out of Koenig. And I like that they don't put it all out there. They don't let you know what he says to him. Yeah, it's effective enough. I knew. Koenig's yeah. like breaking down. He's like basically crying on his knees when he's praying with this priest. It's clear for anyone who's watching critically that he's this been, is a death threat. Yeah. So the credits roll next. And immediately after the credits, we see Gary and Rath head back to the Red Castle, the police station in Berlin. He's down in the basement with Graf developing that photo, that one little clipping that he found from the porn film he's been after. Graf asks him if it was, you know, a professional photographer or a professional cameraman. And Garion seems to say, no, this was taken secretly. So it's a dimly lit photo. He enlarges a little bit, but still the man that's got that, you know, bondage outfit on and his, his dick in a chastity belt or whatever, he's got his face still scratched out. But now Garion's got a closer look at the scene and the two women that are in it. Garion also makes it clear to Graf that he is not to tell anyone about this photo. Mm. And he's not going to, like, Graf deliver the photo to him either. He's going to take it immediately and says, don't tell anyone you saw this. This doesn't exist. After that, there's a very quick scene where we see Bruno returns Garion's lost gun, the gun that he lost during the pursuit of Kryeski in episode one. So Garion gets his gun back and then immediately goes in and starts to interrogate Koenig. Ooh, I didn't catch that the first time I watched it. I didn't know that Bruno was giving Garion back his own gun. I assumed that this was a new one because the other one was lost, but it does make sense. Bruno says something like, yeah, our boys did a good job. They, like, cleaned out the barrel and, you know, did whatever, like, serviced your weapon for you. Here you go. This is where we get the first joke of the episode, one of only two jokes. Garion suggests, you know, politely, that maybe him and Bruno will interrogate Koenig together today. And Bruno says, no, I won't get involved. That's fine. Somebody needs to let Polly out of jail. And then he rips ass and leaves the room. Apparently, that's an actual fart joke like a classic old school fart joke like oh who let polly out of jail did you hear that is that polly apparently that's a reference to a fart never knew that before no never knew that before either and this is one of those moments where i i already like the show is already 100 percent in but then when they make this fart joke and no one really acknowledges it and it's not even really supposed to be like i think it's supposed to be comedic but no one's laughing it's not like slapstick this is where you're like okay this is the level of comedy we're at it's gonna be twice an episode and you know also in the tally of farts that's number one so mm. we're gonna keep a running tally here on the dl presents that's right because there will be more there are more. Stay tuned, listeners. After Bruno's fart joke, Garion receives his service weapon back from Bruno and then goes straight to interrogate Koenig. He starts to ask Koenig questions, particularly about the film that he's most interested in. But Koenig stops him and asks for some fresh air. And Koenig looks rough, which you would expect because he's been in prison for a while. But we, the audience, know he's looking scared because he just had that visit from the Armenian's henchmen. And he's not talking at all. He, though, So far, he hasn't given any information to Garion. But little naive Garion goes and opens the window for Koenig, leaving his holstered gun in his jacket on the chair. Koenig leaps across the desk with his hands cuffed together, grabs Garion's new service pistol. Yeah, at first he's got the gun pointed right at Garion, so 
Garion believes, and I think we, the audience, at first believe Garion's in in trouble. But then Koenig tells him to close his eyes, and still Garion thinks that it's because he's in danger. And Koenig wants him to close his eyes because it might be harder to shoot him with Garion looking at him. You mentioned this in the first episode, Leslie, but Garion is brave. Maybe stupid, but brave. Maybe a bad cop, but brave. Maybe foolish, but brave. He stares down the barrel of the gun and he's like, what then, Koenig? You're not going to make it out of here alive. You're in the middle of the police station. What's your plan here? And Koenig turns the gun on himself before Garion can stop him. He blows his brains out. Garion catches Koenig's collapsed body. A cop comes in and is attempting to ask what happened. But we immediately start to see Garion begin to disassociate almost. So he starts to kind of space out. He stumbles out of the room. And as he's walking down the hallway, you can see him attempting to be composed. But from his perspective, the lights are flickering, the noises are muffled, and he's trying to make his way to a private place, to the bathroom. I like the cinematography here. This is the first time in the show that I can think of where they're using a lot of like Dutch angles, like the camera is like spinning off its level access. A lot of frames start to drop out. So in between frames of the show, it's just blackness, like the kind of a strobolite effect. And it works. I feel like you know Garion is falling into an episode of whatever shaking malady you saw him experiencing in the very first scene you meet him in episode one. It worked for me. We don't find out where Garion ends up because the camera cuts to Charlotte Ritter making her way through the police station looking for a bathroom. We've all been there, folks. She walks up to the first door. It's a men's room. Walks up to the next one. It's also a men's room. Out of desperation, she gets in there, sits down on the commode. Who could blame her? She can hear the labored breathing and looks underneath the stall to see Garion's leg twitching in the stall next to her. She opens the door and finds him collapsed on the floor next to the toilet. Basically saves his life. He's not really able to control himself. He's, he's shaking. His elbows are fully bent. His fingers are clawed up and balled up. He pisses himself just like Franz did in episode one. But he's able to communicate enough to Charlotte to get the drugs out of his front coat pocket. She opens up two glass vials and dumps them into his mouth. But noticeably, she drops one of them and it kind of lodges itself into a little crack in the bathroom floor. But Garion's situation stabilizes. And he kind of tells Charlotte the same thing he told Graf, which is, you can't tell anyone about this. And she assures him that her lips are sealed. He need not worry. And I guess they trust each other because of that meet cute in episode one. There's a little bit of a rapport, but obviously this is high stakes for Garion. I guess he just figures he can trust this lady. Yeah, they exchange a couple of kind of lighthearted quips about one another. Charlotte makes fun of Garion's name. Yeah, she says, I'm Charlotte Ritter. And he says, I'm Rath, Garion Rath. She's like, Garion? Where are you from? The Middle Ages? The Middle Ages, that's right. And then he says, is this your mistake or mine? Meaning... Am I in the women's room or are you in the men's room? I guess this is the second joke of the show after the fart joke. She's like, do you know how many men's rooms are in the police station? 53. Do you know how many women's rooms? And she holds up just five fingers. Listeners, I've bust into a ladies room and used the bathroom. Leslie, have you ever used a men's room? Absolutely. Often. I have this on tape and I'm going to get you registered as a sex offender. I feel like every woman listening to this has absolutely used a men's room before. Ladies out there listening, have you ever used a men's room? Email us at thedlpresents at gmail.com. Stay tuned for the Leckerbeeson in the third chapter of the episode where we're going to talk a little bit more about Garion's condition and the kind of drugs that he's taking and what would have been taken at that time for what we now call PTSD and might have been referred to as shell shock at the time.
Cut to the Mocha FD Cafe where we see Kartikov pick up his beloved Svetlana. He shows her some forms that we see will allow them to get that train car carrying the mysterious cargo to Istanbul, Turkey. Svetlana also comes on really hard in this scene. I mean, she's a bit of a stage five clinger, but she tells Kartikov that she loves him. She looks squarely in his eyes. And insincerity tells him, I love you. I love you. And guys, I just... Are you not buying it? She comes on really strong, but I'm not buying it. She, I'm not buying it, Svetlana. I can tell you right the, right now, the first time I watched it, I bought it. And I was like, oh, these renegade Russian communists and their silly love. It looked like really bad acting. And I was like, man, I hope that's not what's really going on. And then later in the episode, you find out, oh, yeah, that's not what's going on. You saw through it, but Kartikov did not. Damn. Oof. <laughs> Yikes. The next scene cuts back to Gary and Rath, who's changing his clothes at the police station out of his bloody bathroom floor-stained outfit and taking a phone call with a man that isn't identified. But this man seems to know about the porn film and the blackmail and everything. Gary tells him, Koenig's dead, and I do not have that film. All I've got is one picture from it. The man on the other end of the line seems to say, the stakes are huge, buddy. You need to get this done. Walter Bruno walks in and wants to know what the hell happened with Koenig and why, where Garion's been ever since. Garion kind of hangs up the phone and they find out they've got to go upstairs to talk to the political division about what just happened. Bruno and Garion go upstairs to the political department to get a talking to from Counselor Benda, the head of the political police. This guy is a big wig within the police department. Benda would have been in charge of overseeing the investigation into Watergate for instance. Like, yes. If there's political intrigue or political crimes being committed, this guy's on the case. Yeah, that's a that's that's exactly the vibe I'm getting. Almost like a CIA, FBI, probably FBI. FBI is probably the best yeah. comparison, yeah. No, okay. He is clearly senior to both Bruno and Garion. At first, Benda seems concerned with what the hell happened with Koenig. He lashes into Garion and he's like, look, you knew this guy. You've been following him for weeks. You knew what he was capable of. How could you let this happen? And it was interesting to me that Bruno, thick cop, kind of sticks up for Garion a little bit, puts his neck up there. He says, look, this guy didn't act negligently. Benda doesn't want to hear anything about it. He's like, who asked you? And then, kind of a quid pro quo, Garion sticks up for Bruno a little bit because Benda wants to know how Koenig got injured and why he's all battered. Of course, we know that's because Bruno beat him up. But Garion seems to say, well, he was trying to get away. He was trying to escape. So he had to be apprehended via force. So they both cover for each other a little. I wasn't expecting that at first. No, and actually something else that stood out to me in this little scene is that Benda is even asking about Koenig's condition as if he, you know, was opposed to the fact that he had been roughened up at the hands of the police. Yeah, I wouldn't think that anyone would give a damn. Nope. I kind of automatically assumed corruption, but we learn more, a little bit more about Benda in some coming episodes, and maybe it's true to character. I'm just glad they're making interesting choices. Like, this early in the show, it's not a cut-and-dry, good guys, bad guys, cops chase robbers sort of thing. Yes, and it, actually, it's funny enough because Benda shows this little bit of concern over Koenig's welfare and condition as he was in police custody. And then once Bruno leaves the room, we learn that Benda's in on Garion's secret mission to find this porn film. Right. Very soon into the conversation, Benda orders everybody out of the room. His own people and also Walter Bruno, thick cop. 
So now he's talking alone with Garion, and the mood lightens noticeably. He does seem to know about the porn film, the blackmail, the intrigue. He says he talked to Garion's father in Cologne. And if you'll remember from episode one, Garion's father is a big wig in the law enforcement division in Cologne. Garion says the Lord Mayor of Cologne is being blackmailed. That's why I'm here. I'm on that case. And Benda at least seems in the moment to buy that at face value. As they're wrapping up their conversation, Benda mentions the fact that Garion is Catholic and invites him to meet him, Benda, at a Catholic church on a very specific day. It seems like an offer that Garion cannot say no to, so he agrees. Benda also inquires into Garion's accommodations and come to find out Garion is in between accommodations. So yeah, Benda, he's been kicked out of his hotel. Yeah, and so Benda and Bruno kind of set up new accommodations for him. Benda asks Bruno specifically to find a room for Garion. And turns out Bruno knows a woman who is a landlady and has an available room. Calls Bruno's her up. got a guy. Bruno's got a guy. And in this case... It's a woman. So Bruno sets up Garion with a new place to stay, and coincidentally, it is Alexei Kartikov's old room at Elizabeth Benka's boarding house. Bruno grabs the young Stefan, who's working at the police station, and tells him to drive Garion to his new accommodations. They get in the car together, but Garion wants to make a stop on the way there. On the way to Benke's, Garion has Stefan stop by the train station so that he can have a quick chat with Krajewski because he wants to ask Krajewski if he recognizes the two prostitutes who were in that single frame of the pornography film that he has. Krajewski tries to make a joke and kind of divert answering the question, but eventually he admits that he recognizes one of the prostitutes and refers to her as... Moody aus Wedding. Moody from Wedding. So Wedding is a neighborhood in northwest Berlin. And Garion seems satisfied with that answer. He's got a lead to go on. Exactly. He has a lead. This scene probably contains the third joke from the episode. An older woman solicits sex from Garion at the train station before Franz Krajewski arrives. She seems to say something along the lines of like, hey, little bunny, you want to get warm? The newspaper stand operator says, hey, he's a cop. She's like, I don't care. They need sex too, right? It's not clear if, if she would be like a legal registered with the police prostitute or just like an old lady making a quick buck. It's not clear, but stay tuned to the end of the episode where Leslie will dive in deep on the prostitution scene over the time in 1929 Berlin. The next scene is, to me, the most perplexing scene of the whole episode. We see a mustachioed man, very thin, in a leather jacket, looking skinny, a little pale, almost a little sickly. He gets out of a car and enters the Soviet embassy. We see him go into the ambassador's office and tell the ambassador that Kartikov calls him out by name, that Kartikov is the leader of a cell of Trotskyist in Berlin. Of course, the ambassador makes a little phone call over to the boss man, and that scene ends there. Yeah, it's quick and dirty. The The part about the scene that's perplexing is this man that is clearly Svetlana. Yeah, and what's so perplexing, what I want to know is, are we, the audience, supposed to recognize her in this Nikos character? My take is that we're not supposed to notice. I know that we did. We did call that it was Svetlana right away. But the camera angles they chose tell me that the producers of the show at least wanted to hold that off until later in the episode. They show this man, Nikos, which is Svetlana's onstage persona. They show him from the top with a hat on when he gets out of the car. You see him from behind walking into the ambassador's office. So you see his black coat and his black gloves. You see a little bit of a 
profile shot, and that's when I immediately knew that it was Svetlana, but she's got a mustache on, so I don't know. Somebody could be fooled if you were looking at your phone while you were watching the show. I think the directors wanted you to at least wonder for a little while, but by the end of the episode, you know for sure it's her. So the other thing that's perplexing to me about this particular scene, which is honestly a, such a minor scene in that it's it's quick. It's like a it's 20 seconds max. But what was her intention for dressing up as her onstage persona? I think on the one hand, it's obvious that she doesn't want to be recognized as Fetlana, as this woman, but she dresses up as her fairly famous onstage persona. So there's not a lot of anonymity there. Yeah, I cannot imagine for a second that the folks at the Soviet embassy aren't like, who the hell are you? We need real answers, weirdo with a fake mustache on. But I I think for dramatic effect, they've got her in costume. So at least for the willing suspension of disbelief to make this episode work, we, the audience, eventually know that it is Svetlana. But on some level, we have to believe that the Soviets don't know it's her. Yeah, and you gotta think that they're, I don't know, I don't want to overthink it. It's probably not worth overthinking. It just, it's, it has stayed with me in my multiple watchings. I can't get over it. I don't know. But that brings you, brings us, excuse me, to another important point, which is this is the first cross-dressing character in the show, not the last. This is a show that is not afraid to deal with gender identity and gender bending and a little bit of alternative sexuality, and it's pretty cool. And that would have been true of the time in Berlin back in 1929 before the, you know, kind of very rigid hardcore right-wing authoritarian regime that comes to power later, people in Berlin were a little more free to express themselves in this way. And it wouldn't have been insane to see a gender-bending live performance that we'll get to later in the episode. Before we go any further, I want to let our listeners know that this episode is sponsored by Menage et Trois Luscious Pinot Noir. A relatively cheap wine accessible to working-class people that has a tongue-in-cheek name and an insinuation of sexual... Pleasantries. Sexual pleasantries. And by sponsored by, we mean that Ménage et Trois contributed no money to the making of this episode. Absolutely no monetary contribution. I, I guess not sponsored by. Today's episode is inspired by <laughs> Ménage et Trois Luscious Pinot Noir. I assume it's a three-grape blend. That might be giving it too much credit to the thought behind it, but... One criticism of Menage a Trois Luscious Pinot Noir, there are only two figures embossed onto the uh, label of the wine, and there ought to be three. Opulent, rich, voluptuous. Wow. Sold. I'm drinking it. Sold. It's delicious. All right, moving on. In the next scene, we see Garion moving into his new accommodations at Elizabeth Benka's boarding house. She walks him through the room... Kardakov's old room that he apparently just vacated because we saw her cleaning up his things and putting away his poster and his violin. He moves into that room. She says, air it frequently. It's got a little balcony overlooking the street. And then a new character comes into the scene, Mr. Samuel Connellbach. He's a left-leaning journalist. We learn that he's Austrian. And apparently he's about to travel to Vienna to do some reporting on a new authoritarian regime that's coming to power there. All we know about him is that he has not yet paid the rent. He promises Elizabeth he'll do it soon, whenever his article is published, but it's not clear if that's ever going to happen or not. I actually love this scene. This really is kind of a throwaway, almost meaningless scene in the grand scheme of the plot, but I love it for two reasons. First, we see Benke show Gary in his room, and she takes him out to the balcony, and they make a, a little quip back and forth, and she gives him some major doomy eyes, and he gives them right back to her. And then <laughs> immediately following that is when he goes, she, sorry, immediately 
immediately following that is when she goes and accosts Cattleback for rent. And she comes across as this, like, prudent, uptight, penny-pinching you know, landlord. You gotta, you gotta get the rent if you're a landlady, but for sure on the balcony, yeah. I didn't see those doomy eyes at first. You've got it, Leslie. You've got an eye for doomy eyes. I've got my eyes out for those doomy eyes. The exchange they have is something like, are you, are you superstitious? And then Benka says, no. Or Benka asks Garion, are you superstitious? He says, no. How about you? She goes, no. And that's that. That's the flirtation. Which is honestly perfect because both of them are, you know, they, they're giving off some uptight vibes and it's like they, they found their mirror image in one another. Garion takes the room week by week. So he's going to pay three weeks up front because Garion doesn't know how long he's going to be in Berlin. But as soon as he can get this case closed, he's probably going to leave town. That's the assumption. The other reason I love this scene is just that Cattleback is funny. He's funny. He's like, obviously has a really good relationship with Elizabeth Banky, even though he's kind of like skirting around paying her his rent. He seems like a long-term tenant. You see a little view into his room and it's a fucking mess, but it's lived in, you know, he's been there a while. I like this guy. I hope he sticks around. I think he will. He's not so far a major character, but he's one of my favorites, actually. Next, we see Charlotte and her family in their apartment preparing dinner. Charlotte and her sisters are essentially lamenting about their unfortunate situation. So Charlotte's sister is grumpy and making all these sort of underhanded comments about her and her husband. And Charlotte straight up asks her, you know, why are you being so crabby? What is up with you? And she says, well, I mean, I haven't slept all night. And Charlotte's like, why? Why not? Because, of course, Charlotte's not around at night. She doesn't know. Charlotte's sister is like, oh, mom was coughing, and then Eric was puking, and then grandpa wet the bed, and Tona was crying, and Magda was yelling, and Carlton had diarrhea. Ugh. <laughs> it's just, like, fucking brutal. Who could sleep? And they're all just in this, you know, one-bedroom apartment, I think. Maybe two-bedroom. Two yeah, the Ritter apartment. family lives in a phone booth. <laughs> I do like this scene. I like this scene a lot. I like all the Charlotte Ritter home scenes. They make me super anxious because obviously that family <laughs> is like living penny to penny in dire straits. But I feel like it is the one time this show really zooms a camera lens in super close on the way that average people must have been living during the Weimar Republic. I also really like this scene because after Charlotte's sister spouts off this laundry list of reasons why she didn't sleep, she ends it with, and of course, Lottie wasn't home. And Charlotte just laughs. She's like, sorry, dude, that's funny, but you're right. (laughs) But Charlotte does say she brought home the sausage in more ways than one. The last lighthearted moment of the Ritter House scene is when the grandfather just silently reaches over and grabs a little bit of sausage and eats it for himself. And everyone turns to him like, Grandpa! And it's a lighthearted moment. I'm glad they ended on a lighthearted note. I was reading reviews about the show and like just what was already out there in the world about Babylon Berlin. The British press apparently didn't take a super serious look at the show and kind of made some like sausage jokes, which I just thought was, I don't know. I don't know much about like British entertainment or like the UK's take on cultural affairs or like reviews of TV shows or movies, but I feel like that's something you wouldn't see in America. You wouldn't see like tongue in cheek 
schnitzel jokes. No, that actually surprises me for the British. Maybe we need to get to know the Brits a little better. They like a dick joke more than I thought they did. And I'm going to be honest, I'm an Anglophile. I'm not coming across as such, but I am. I promise. (laughs) A couple of Anglophiles over here, but I do like sausage. The rest of the episode is a series of quick cuts between scenes that are all happening at the same time. First, we see Charlotte arriving at the Mocha FD Cafe that night. She happens to pass. Did you catch this? She passes a small group of communists protesting on the corner. Yeah, they're protesting against banks, which I thought was interesting Mm -hmm. and still totally relevant. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, she goes into the Mocha Epic Cafe. She gets her, you know, a drink, posts up at the bar. She immediately gets an invitation to dance from a very homely-looking patron. Bad mustache on this guy. Charlotte Ritter is a good-looking woman. She's a good-looking woman, and she's not picky. <laughs> she is not picky. She looks underslept and maybe underfed, but natural beauty is in there. She's an uncut gem. Absolutely. While Charlotte's at the Mocha FD, we see that Gary and Raph has gone out for the night to visit the pharmacist. The head pharmacist seems to know he was coming, knows him by name, knows that he came from Cologne, and the pharmacist asks his assistant, his young assistant, to go out and buy cigarettes so he can leave them alone for a second. They step into the back room, and the pharmacist demands to see Garion's prescription. Apparently, that prescription comes in the form of hot, sexy nude photos. Garion slips him the good stuff, and the doctor pulls out a couple more vials of what we already now know is the drug that Garion is both addicted to and absolutely needs to calm the tremors that seem to come over him any time a situation of high anxiety arises. The thing I thought was weird about this, Leslie, is that the pharmacist, having never met Garion before, as far as we know, goes on and on about how wonderful it must be for Garion to be from Cologne because that's where the birds or women are like loose and fun and interesting. And he, as a married pharmacist, is stuck in Berlin where the women pretend to be swinging but are like cold somehow. I think moral of the story is like you're supposed to think that pharmacist man is a perf. He's married, but his wife's a prude. He wants to jerk it to these, like, crime scene porn photos. Definitely a perf. Confiscated porn photos. Illicit pornography. Illicit. Which probably heightens the appeal, I would say. Well, we never get to find out how heightened his appeal gets, because as soon as Garion leaves and our pharmacist is about to sit down and rub one out, we come across the fourth joke of the episode. He's going through these dirty photos, and he's about to unzip his pants, I imagine, or unbutton them, unclasp, who knows. And then he comes across a photo that, if you remember from episode one, would have been one of Charlotte Ritter's crime scene photos that got dislodged and mixed up with Garion's porn photos. It's like severed hands. And it totally kills the boner kills the mood you know i i think that garion and the pharmacist must have interacted before for several reasons one garion knew to take the confiscated photos and we never hear garion tell him he's from cologne so that must have come up in a previous conversation yeah either they talked ahead on the phone or that's the first person garion went and met with when he got to town you're right they have to have some previous rapport but it just didn't happen on camera and it just adds to the mystery i mean it's a common theme of the show where they don't need to tell you everything they give you just enough to draw some conclusions and then move on out like that they don't spell it out the other detail from this scene that we learn is the pharmacist almost jokingly says only take two of these a day or else you'll get addicted and then he kind of laughs i think that laughter is meant to suggest that this guy is fully addicted there's no question you can't (laughs) they both 
know that Garyon's addicted. You can't be taking liquid heroin and not get fully addicted. Warning to our <laughs> listeners, don't take drugs. This episode sponsored by Red Wine. Drugs are bad, okay? We cut back to the Mocha FD Cafe where we see young Stefan and his friend Rudy admiring all of the scantily clad women around them. Rudy remarks that there's just broads on broads on broads. He's almost the spiritual successor to the pharmacist that we just met. Rudy asks Stefan who his girl is. You know, who you got your eyes on? I can't even tell where I need to direct my gaze. There's so many titties popping out of everywhere in this club tonight. Poor, sweet, innocent Stefan says, I know where my gaze is directed, and it's at Charlotte dancing with this other man. Dancing with this poorly mustached man. <sighs> that poor mustache. What a sad mustache. It's on level with Nikoros's mustache, I would say. Yeah, but Nikoros's mustache is at least performative, and this guy is trying way too hard. <laughs> Nikoros's mustache at. is fake, and this little ginger is rocking his real stash, and it is sad. Mm. For those of you listening, I know you can't see me, but I am sporting a full-on Yosemite Sam down from my lip all the way till dragging on the desk mustache. This thing is luxurious. That's why we keep the cat out of the studio. So I was trying to claw at this thing. But truly, I feel like this is the first time in the series that we've met a true villain. Everyone's morally ambiguous in the show. There's no good guys and bad guys, and that's part of what I love about it. But Rudy is a fucking bad guy. The moment that Stefan is like, I've got my eyes on this girl. She's beautiful and I've seen her at the police station. I'm trying to get a dance with her. Rudy's like, oh, hold this. Hold my, like, cigarette and steals Stefan's drink and then walks right out on the dance floor, butts in on Charlotte Ritter's dance and basically picks her up. Rudy's like, quick, hold my beer. Watch this. No broad code. And you got this cast of, like, Stalin. You've got Trotsky and you've got these, like, crooked cops. You've got prostitutes. The true villain, Rudy. The true villain is Rudy. Fuck you, Rudy. What a dick. What a dick. Number one dick of the episode, Rudy. That's my vote. Agreed. Agreed. Here, here. Thick Cop might be corrupt, but Rudy is just intentionally mean. Thick Cop is corrupt. Garion is a fucking noob. The pharmacist is a pervert. But Rudy is the true villain. But to move the plot along, Rudy gets with Charlotte, steals her from that poorly mustached young fellow, and they start to move up to the front of the stage because none other than Nikoros is starting his slash her signature number, Zuast Zustaub. So good. So good. We've got to talk about this music video style scene. I've read some people on the internet, on Reddit at least, didn't really like this break from convention in the second episode where they have this kind of song and dance routine, music that's a little avant-garde, the camera is like panning and swaying and flying on jibs left and right, and people accuse this scene of being unrealistic. I read online some people were upset that folks in the audience did this synchronized dance. I loved it. The first time I watched the show, I didn't like the song that much, but now I'm addicted to it. The dance, though, the dance was dope from Jump Street. I thought the whole thing was amazing, and I loved it all from the very beginning. I'm glad they don't do this in every episode. They don't try to cram in a music video into every single episode, but the fact that they did it this early in the first season, I'm glad for that. It was a flexing of muscle for the show. In terms of, like, production, I feel like they really showed you what they're capable of, and it is a lot. And for me, this was was the hook. This was the scene where I'm like, ride or die, I'm into this show no matter what. We could talk forever about Juas Justab, and we will in the third portion of the show, so stay tuned for the Lecker Beeson because 
this song has such interesting behind-the-scenes aspects, namely that Tom Tick, were one of the three directors for the show, actually helped to write this song. But it has a lot of importance for the scene itself because there's a lot of cutting back and forth between our simultaneous scenes, but all scenes are moving along this trajectory of the song's crescendo. So back to the plot for a second. We've got Rudy muscling in on Stefan's crush. Stefan finally grows a backbone and midway through Juas Justab makes his way up to the front of the crowd and joins in on the synchronized dance during the big drum solo. While this fun dance number is going down at the Mocha FD, we see the Trotskyist print shop. So Kardakov is there. Paper comes off the printing press. He signs this document and he goes outside to relieve himself. Yeah, these would have been the documents that he was referring to earlier in the scene with Svetlana in the car. There's a very quick series of cuts back and forth between scenes right here. Back at the Mocha FD Cafe, we catch the face of a new character in the show. While Svetlana, a.k.a. Nikoros, is on stage, we can see a patron sitting high in some kind of VIP seat just has his eyes glued to her. This is a well-dressed man with an obvious birthmark in his face. We will learn that he is Alfred Neeson. This scene makes me laugh so fucking hard because Neeson is just like chewing his bottom lip. He's like fucking salivating over Nikoros, a.k.a. Svetlana. Is it a little homoerotic? I choose to say yes. You choose to say yes, yeah. I mean, yeah. Desperation. My dude's horny. Even I could read those doomy eyes. Yeah, those are stronger doomy eyes. I don't have doomy eyes dar like Leslie does, but even I could tell. They lay it on thick. My dude wants Nikaros, a.k.a. Svetlana. Also at the Mocha FD Cafe, we see a little exchange between a barkeep and a patron. So a patron gives this waiter a blue candy that says Mocha FD Cafe. And there's a little nod, nod, wink, wink. And next thing we know, Charlotte's leading this man down to the sex dungeon. It's important to know that this is the same candy referenced in the very first episode when we meet Charlotte. She says she's got a little gift for her sister, Tony, in her coat pocket, and it was in yellow or orange candy at that time. And I couldn't help but notice in that first episode when we meet Charlotte, she has a bruise on her neck. Tony asks where she got it from. She says, oh, don't worry about that. And now she's receiving a blue candy. The color of the candy seems to matter for what kind of business Charlotte gets up to down in the aforementioned sex dungeon. And interesting to note that Tony says to Charlotte in the first episode when she receives the yellow candy, oh, I've never had a yellow one before, as if Charlotte had never done whatever that sex act correlated to the yellow candy is. We see Charlotte and this tuxedo-clad patron walking down through a hallway Well, interesting experimental modern jazz piece is playing upstairs in the club. Everyone upstairs is like gyrating and dancing while the lights are flickering. And it keeps cutting back and forth between the dance floor and Charlotte, who is going ever deeper into the bowels of the Mocha FD, while oiled up naked men and women just like undulate against each other down (laughs) in the dungeon. (laughs) Charlotte eventually gets to the end of a hallway and opens the door where there's like, I guess, two people finishing up whatever kind of sex act they were involved in. They clearly get the clue and leave the room. Charlotte, I believe, ties this man down to the bed puts a leather collar on him and attaches a chain up to herself where she is going to play the role of the top or dominant one in this sex scene. I think that's what the color of the candy is supposed to mean. Blue candy has Charlotte on top. Yellow candy, we have to speculate. I don't know. While Charlotte is 
dominating this Mocha FD patron down in the basement brothel, we see Kartikov outside of the print shop on the toilet in the outhouse, the pit latrine, and he sees this car roll into the parking lot of the print shop. We see folks from that car walk in the front door of the print shop and start shooting. This is the Russian secret police. This is what Svetlana had in mind when she went to the embassy. She knew that she didn't need Kartikov anymore now that she had those train documents. And simultaneous to the hell going on with the Trotskists and the print shop, we see Svetlana again in her dressing room, sort of taking her costume off from Nikoros's performance. And we see her trying to hold it together and her, her lip quivers and her eyes get glassy because she knows that that is what's happening. That's what's going down at the print shop. And her admirer... Alfred Neeson, with the birthmark on his face, comes in with a bouquet of flowers after her performance. I really like the way that she presses those flower buds, like, literally right up to her face, just, like, buries her face in it. Yeah, I think she's trying hard to hold on. And it's, you know, I have fucking no sympathy for the bitch because she looked at Kartikov in the eyes and said, I love you. And I think a part of her meant it. And also, she's fucking savage. She is absolutely savage. But she's multifaceted. You can be savage and have a shred of, you know, the propensity for love. Well, we've seen her play one lover, and I cannot wait to see what happens with this new lover. Especially the fucking drooling puppy of Alfred Neeson. He doesn't strike me as a tough guy. Fuck no. (laughs) No. Love him, but no. Love him, but he is walking into the open jaws of a killer. Back at the print shop, we see that the Soviet hitmen are taking no chances that there will be any escape of Trotskyists from this No survivors. No survivors. It's intense, it's graphic, but they're given a couple extra pops in the head to all of the dead bodies. So one of these thugs sees that there's an outhouse behind the print shop. And again, not taking any chances, just unloads a Tommy gun on it, blasts into the outhouse where we as the audience know that Kartikov was hiding out. He walks up and opens up the door, sees some bullet holes in the wood, and then his buddy is like, hey man, we gotta go. Job's done. Get in the car. We need to leave. And he turns around and leaves. In the final scene of this episode, the camera pans down as the opening instrumental to Juas Justa plays again, and we see Kartikov just Filthy, dirty, nasty, covered in shit, hiding out, but alive, in the bottom of the outhouse. Up to his chin in shit. Leslie, that wraps it for the episode synopsis, but oh my god, there is so much to talk about. In the second segment of the show today, are you going to give us a little background on this Russian thing? You betcha. There was not one, not two, but three revolutions? Countless, honestly, countless. I'll take you through them all. Dan, do you hear that? Do you know what that means? Oh, does it mean that mom's coughing, Eric's puking, grandpa wet the bed, Tony's crying, Magda's yelling, and Carlton has diarrhea? No, but it does mean that we are on to chapter two, where we'll explain some of the context and history around this episode of the show. Today, we're diving into the Russian Revolution. In episode one, we're first introduced to Kartikov and Svetlana and their comrades, who we know are Trotskyites, and they're involved in some kind of print press operation. 
we see them again in episode two and the plot kind of builds around them and what it is that they're doing at the print shop. And we see Svetlana essentially betray Kardakov and the rest of the comrades by telling the ambassador from the Soviet Union that there's a group of Trotskyites. So it's kind of important to know or understand why would there be Russians in Berlin? Why would they be involved in some kind of like Trotskyite propaganda? So let's let's start at the start. Yep. Let's talk about Russia while the Tsar is in charge. The okay. final days of Tsarist Russia while the First World War is still going on. Mm-hmm. So this would have been early 1917. Mm-hmm. What happened to that Tsar? So in 1917... When Russia is still in the middle of World War One, Tsar Nicholas is in power. The Duma still exists, representing some interests of the common folks. There's two rev- revolutions that happen, or two kind of um, protests or political movements. The first is in March 1917. There is um, like a workers' rights protest that ends in a lot of casualties of protesters. Um, Nicholas, Sir Nicholas's government kind of handles the situation poorly and ends up shooting into the crowd of peaceful protesters. Obviously, that does not go down very well. And it's after this kind of use of fatal force against the protesters that it's kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back and he decided to abdicate the throne. So the Duma still technically exists at this point, which is essentially um, a group of representatives kind of representing different interests of different groups of people in Russia. And I assume different regions of the country because it's so massive. Exactly. Different regions and, you know, there's the farmers and there's the factory workers, et cetera, et cetera. But that's extremely temporary. So that was March 1917. And then in the fall of the same year is what we know of as the Bolshevik Revolution. So this is when Lenin and his group of communists who are currently exiled in continental Europe come back into Russia after hearing that the Tsar has abdicated the throne and there's this time of upheaval. They kind of seize the opportunity to come back into Russia and take over the government. This is something I never learned as a child, that Vladimir Lenin was helped back into Russia at this really vulnerable time, an unstable time, helped by Germans. They knew. They were smart enough and had enough counterintelligence, I guess, during the First World War to know the destabilizing effect that Vladimir Lenin would have and that extreme left socialism would have on Russia, that Germans assisted in smuggling Vladimir Lenin uh, from his exile across battle lines, across Germany, and into Russia in hopes of completely destabilizing that country. And in a way, it worked. And it it kind of came to bite Germany in the butt decades later and the rest of the world, frankly. I wish that were referenced directly in Babylon Berlin, but for sure it's Germany's fault that Russia had the kind of violent Bolshevik revolution that they ended up having. Right, and this is 1917, so this is 12 years before Babylon Berlin, which is kind of important because that tells you right there, we know that Stalin is in power in 1929, Lenin's in power in 1917. Lenin's reign honestly doesn't last very long. but It was white hot and really short. It was. Lenin and a lot of other communists, including Trotsky, were exiled into continental Europe because they had been leading small little protests and skirmishes on behalf of what would later be the Communist Party against the Tsar and the monarchy. And the middle-of-the-road politicians, the not-quite-communist, not-quite-loyalist, still have a role to play. Because the, cent- the center? The centrist. The, what, what would 
would have been maybe folks from the Duma. They have a role to play because following this Bolshevik revolution in late 1917, there's going to be five years of civil war in Russia starting in early 1918. The Civil War is the Red Army, which are essentially at this time the Bolsheviks. Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin's there, and a whole bunch of communist comrades fighting what's referred to as the White Army, and these are the centrists. The Whites were originally a super small group of people that wanted the Tsar back. They were kind of loyalists, and they were former Russian military officers. So it was a small group of very well-organized people. But they became this catch-all. Yes. <laughs> Any, anyone who doesn't want these Bolsheviks around, which was a lot of people because those Bolsheviks were violent as hell, and they hated anyone with an education, and they hated anyone with money. So there were tons of Russians that were like, I don't know about bringing the Tsar back, but I'm sure as hell not down with this Lenin guy and his desire to take my house and kill my children. You're so correct. And this is what I also find fascinating. It's like people were tired of the Tsar. They didn't want the Tsar. Here come the Bolsheviks. And then they're like, fuck, this is even worse. So everyone else, the white army is literally just everyone else in the country that's not a Bolshevik. July 1918, we've heard this story before, but the Red Army, led by Lenin, the Bolsheviks, execute the entire Romanov family, Tsar mm -hmm. Nicholas, wife, and all of their children, and actually some of their servants, uh, the doctor, maid, etc. And the story goes that Lenin sort of signed the death order for the Tsar. This kind of initiates, this is like the starting point of a time period known as the Red Terror, which is this big political campaign that we're actually going to see across regime changes in Russia for many, 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 many years to come. Yeah. But it's essentially where the folks in charge are going to execute their competition and they're executing people kind of just to like set the tone that shit is very serious and you're going to fall in line or you're gone. A lot of public executions going on this time. And this is, so Tsar Nicholas and previous Romanovs and, and royals in Russia had their secret police. You know, they had the people doing some covert ops. That was always a thing in Russia. That's always been a thing in every country. But this sort of regime change in the Bolshevik Revolution is kind of like the foundation of what we might think of as the KGB, so like the communist secret police. And the this, Cheka. The Cheka, yeah. At this point in time, they're called the Cheka. So they're the ones kind of like... That is the cutest secret police name, by the, the way, from history. The Cheka? It sounds like a, um, like a maybe like an anime character. That's adorable. Or and like yes. a Neopets character. I agree. The Cheka could be something that like, you're like, oh my God, I opened a pack of Pokemon cards and I got the Cheka. Exactly. In fact, that might be a Pokemon character. I don't know. I'll have to go look it up. But I imagine being cute and having like pink circle cheek blush. Anyway. Yeah, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the Cheka was doing the bidding of the communist elite who had by this point taken over the country. Exactly. Now, I mentioned previously that Lenin's reign actually doesn't last long, and that's simply because he's in poor health. So by 1920, his health has deteriorated to the point where he knows his time is short and he's kind of trying to plant some seeds for who might come into power next. So he writes what what's called Lenin's Testament, where he essentially compares and contrasts the top contenders for who might take over after his death. And the two biggest contenders are Trotsky and Stalin. Now, Lenin actually recommends that Stalin be removed from his political position, 
he, Lenin, doesn't feel like he's suited to be a leader. And he describes Trotsky as the most capable man in the present Central Committee. So Lenin makes it kind of clear that he would prefer Trotsky take over, but Stalin is a clever, clever dude. And he's been kind of, he's got good publicity good PR. So he's been kind of posing himself for the public as Lenin's right-hand man. So he's very intentionally getting himself, literally getting himself beside Lenin in photographs and press releases. He's positioning himself well. And in the end, it works. Stalin had to have known that Lenin was in bad health as well. Like he would have been one of very few people that would have known Lenin personally and seen him face to face on a daily basis and known that his health was failing. And so pretty devious, but I guess smart of Stalin to position him that way. But it's understandable why Trotsky would have had fans of his own, even though Stalin eventually assumed the role of leader and took over Russia after Lenin's death. I could see why there would be Trotsky loyalists, especially in the immediate aftermath of Lenin's death, because he led the Red Army during the revolution. He was a literal Bolshevik celebrity. He was known sometimes to be called the Comet because he would take trains here and there across the country to be literally physically present to raise morale amongst certain regiments of the revolutionary army here and there, the Red Army. He would have been the most famous face other than Lenin in the entire country as the Civil War came to a close, you know? Like, I I could see why Stalin would be intimidated by him and would want him out of the way. For sure. And I definitely see Lenin, Stalin, and Trotsky as, like, trash, But I have to say... (laughs) Vladimir Lenin seemed like he was incredibly smart. Maybe like evil. Well... Really smart guy. So that's the thing. It's like... I mean, in my opinion, they all fucking suck. They're brutal and fucking out of touch. But I have Pretty out of touch. Pretty out of touch. For a party, political party, that's supposed to be representing the common man, they're fucking out of touch. But I have a little bit of respect for Trotsky because he's kind of like the purest. Yeah, I I mean, he's brutal. But he was into real socialism. Exactly. He was into real ideological socialism. He wasn't posing for pictures. He wasn't the kind of guy who wanted an elite cadre of super wealthy playboys running the whole country. Exactly. I, I think of him as like a purist. So regardless, Stalin does end up taking over by, I mean, by his own will. You know, it's not like there's an election. He doesn't get voted into power. Lenin dies. Stalin decides he's the man. Of course, he sees Trotsky as a threat because he essentially is because... Even while Lenin was still alive, there were a, there were some factions within the Communist Party. There were split loyalties. Some people liked Trotsky and Trotsky's point of view, Lenin's point of view, Stalin's point of view. So Trotsky really was a threat to Stalin. There were people in the party very loyal to Trotsky and we learn about those folks in Babylon, Berlin. But Stalin, as soon as he takes power, immediately strips Trotsky of all of his political appointments. And actually in 1929, in February 1929, very timely for Babylon Berlin, Trotsky gets expelled. He gets put into exile. So he's out of Russia. And he's living in Istanbul, Turkey. Yeah. Yep. He's, he goes to Istanbul, Turkey. So he actually spends the rest of his life in exile, but he's still politically active, drumming up support. He kind of stays, I would assume he stays hopeful because he's still trying to do the work. He He's a fierce critic of Stalin. Ooh, like, yeah. 
He's willing to publish stuff that would absolutely get your throat slit if you were living in Russia. Yeah, he just happened to be outside of Russia. Um, but this goes on for like nine years. Trotsky's in exile. He's kind of spreading this propaganda. He's really critical of Stalin, but, you know, Stalin's still running the country, doing his thing, actually gaining support at this time in Russia. But around 1938, so Trotsky, so nine years later, Trotsky's still fucking at it, and he actually founds what he, what's called the Fourth International, which is like a like a political party in opposition to Stalin. Yeah, but, the forthcoming of an international workers' global revolution. Right. In, in theory, anyway. Exactly. Exactly. But that is also short-lived. So while Trotsky spent a lot of his time in exile in Istanbul, he eventually makes his way to Mexico. And in 1940, he is assassinated by essentially the precursor to a KGB agent. What I heard it was an ice pick to the face that killed him. I, I mean, don't even I, know. Don't quote me on that, but I heard it was an ice pick to the face, and I think we have Stalin to thank for it. Oh, definitely have Stalin to thank for it, for sure. And so just to kind of wrap up where Trotsky's story here, Stalin stays in power until the 1950s. So he's around for 30-ish years of leadership in Russia, some of that you know, being Lenin's right-hand man. During this whole time, Trotsky is a four-letter word in Russia. He's written out of history. People don't speak his name. He's obviously not making it into, like, the public education textbooks or anything like that. There's no Soviet statues to Trotsky. Fuck no. No. And in the 1950s, Khrushchev takes over. There's this rehabilitation movement. He, Khrushchev, goes kind of back through history and unredacts some of the shit that's been redacted through history. So he kind of forgives or accepts some folks who had been exiled or on the fringes of the Communist Party. And even some people posthumously. Like some people had died. A lot of people posthumously. A lot of people had died. But I'm sure what you're getting at, Leslie, is that Trotsky was a unique case. Yeah, never rehabilitated. And I have a couple thoughts on this. One is that I love that this 30 years too late IOU apology. So thousands Thousands and thousands and thousands of political adver- adversaries have been executed or died in labor camps or been exiled. And they, they refer to it as rehabilitation, as if the, those people had been sick. And because Khrushchev kind of forgives them and gives them amnesty, they have been rehabilitated. And I might be reading too much into that word, but I just feel like that's the most Russian thing I've ever heard. Yeah, it's very presumptuous. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. I guess it's like their, their reputation has been rehabilitated because a lot of those people were were full-on corpses by that time. <gasps> For sure. So as it pertains to Babylon Berlin, though, with, given this context, you can tell that in 1929, this is barely a year into Stalin's regime in Russia. So again, Stalin wasn't, as you mentioned, he wasn't elected. It's not like all of the Bolshevik and communist forces in Russia agreed that it should be Stalin. He just kind of stepped into the leadership role. And surely early on, a lot of people felt like, hey, we don't necessarily want you in charge, including anyone who was a fan of Trotsky. So it would make sense that Stalin's first year in power involved an enormous amount of lashing out at any and all political adversaries to make sure they were out of the way to clear a path for him to run the country. That's what we see happen in Babylon, Berlin. Yeah, so it's very intentional that we see this group of Trotskyites being active in the spring of 1929 because Trotsky would have just been exiled a couple of months before. 
Yeah, and anyone who is really seriously trying to get Trotsky back into power couldn't have been too loud about it inside of Russia. You almost certainly would have been rounded up and arrested if you were doing that kind of thing in Russia. So it's not wild that they would have instead chosen Berlin. It would make sense to go there to try to support your chosen leader in exile, Leon Trotsky. And as we learn in this episode, you're not even safe doing it in Berlin. Absolutely not safe while Svetlana's around. Fuck no. All right, so that's the quick and dirty version of Trotskyites and the Bolshevik Revolution. There's so much more to the Russian Revolution and Russian communism than we could possibly cover in many podcasts, let alone just in this second chapter of this one episode of this one podcast. So if you're interested in more, I would recommend checking out, at the very least, History of the Great War by Wesley Livesay, uh, another podcast. He's got wonderful six-part series on the Russian Civil War. It's uh, episode 201 through episode 206 of his podcast. Again, it's called The History of the Great War. Infotainment. I love it. Infotainment. Did you invent that? Oh, you're so cute. So no. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I invented infotainment. I haven't invented. Do I give anything. you too much credit? I bought it. I bought that you would have you would have invented that. You give me way too much credit. I haven't invented shit. <laughs> Leslie, every episode of Babylon Berlin, there's the multiple different plots that are going on. There's like a million main characters. There's so much happening that it ends up taking up most of the podcast just to describe the who, what, where, when, and why of each episode. But then there are these amazing black holes that you could dive into of the music and the production of the show and the kind of historical context that is or is not real or true in any given episode. And that's what we save this third part of the podcast for chapter three here or as I call it the Leckerbeeson. So the Leckerbeeson are tantalizing tidbits. I think that Leckerbeeson is a German word. But we might also have made that up. We might have made up the pronunciation. Leckerbeeson I think is supposed to be like snacks, tidbits, little morsels. Juicy, juicy morsels. Dripping with juice. Oh God. So that's what the third part of this podcast is all about. That's what this section is all about. In episode two, the things that stick out to me that I really want to talk about are, first and foremost, Zhuash Zustab. Zhuash Zustab. (laughs) (laughs) Which has become, it's become like a phenomenal hit song across Europe and maybe across the world. I don't know. I fucking love it. I appreciate that it has become such a hit because it honestly has stuck with me to my core to the point that I walk around my house just like washing the dishes, folding the laundry, taking a shower, and Cam, my significant other, will make fun of me because I'm just sitting there. (laughs) It's become Leslie's mantra. To ashes, to dust. In addition to Zhuas Zhustab, I think we should also take some time to look into the kind of shell shock and drug addiction of Gary and Rath and other male characters in Babylon Berlin who have returned from the Great War because it's historically very interesting and it clearly plays some significant role in the first season of the show. And of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about what was that last one? Bubbles in the tub. Bubbles in the tub. Let's talk about making love. That's part of the song I'm not familiar I with. I might have made it up because, again, I... Did I'll... you make up infotainment? <laughs> you know it. 
<laughs> yeah, I want to know way more about the real deal prostitution scene in Berlin, Germany at this point in time. Yeah. Everyone wants in Berlin, baby. All right, Leslie, let's muff dive right in. <laughs> All right, Dan, tell us about... Shellshock? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the term shell shock, we're all familiar with in the English language speaking world, but it's not actually a medical condition. This was a term that came about as early as we can tell in print in 1915 in the Lancet Journal out of Great Britain. Before that, it had certainly been referenced by army officers because this was something that was experienced during the Russo-Japanese War. This occurred before the First World War, and it's the first time you can find at least mentions of men coming back from combat with heavy artillery and prolonged, protracted conflicts, coming back from those engagements with maladies that couldn't be categorized, couldn't be properly diagnosed by medical science of that day. Fast forward to the Great War. In 1914 and 1915, millions of young men, as young as 16 and 17, were rushing to the Western Front to fight in protracted combat that would last for months. It was said that soldiers would sometimes march up to the front, and they would be marching over bodies that had died there both last week and last year. The stench must have been gruesome. So living in that kind of environment, week in and week out, with constant bombardment of heavy artillery, shells the size of a small Volkswagen bug flying overhead and turning up the ground all around you, would certainly affect anyone. What I'm trying to say here is that the horrors of war in the modern mechanized era had been realized very rapidly in the first year of the Great War. In previous conflicts, especially for the French and the French military tradition, they would emphasize offensive tactics and battles would be decisively lost or won within 36 hours or so. Or at the very least, you would decisively defeat an enemy army and they would be fleeing and you would be pursuing or vice versa. That was not the case in the First World War. Trenches were established and heavy artillery was difficult and slow to move to the point that no particular offensive really moved the battle line sometimes for years in the French countryside. The French noticed first that their men were having all sorts of mental maladies as a result of this kind of lifestyle and constant combat. Not to mention the fact that they were not being sent to combat with steel helmets. Those wouldn't be brought into the First World War until like 1917, way late in the conflict. So you might have an artillery shell explode 40 yards away from you, thankfully not killing you outright, but because you had nothing to protect your skull, you would then be buried under tree branches and rocks and dirt and flying metal shrapnel that would just be raining down on you afterwards. So I think it's fair to say that a lot of young men also suffered some head trauma. So it sounds like a mix of emotional trauma and brain damage. Yeah. Either or or both. Leslie and I are not medical professionals, so we certainly could not diagnose people who are no longer alive. But these days we would call this post-traumatic stress disorder. In fact, the term shell shock that we're talking about, many militaries tried to ban the term. They tried to make sure that people weren't using it to describe soldiers, in part because it was medically inaccurate. It was medically imprecise. Anything could be deemed shell shock because it's not a real diagnosis. That being said, the term was still popular and was used throughout the war and afterwards. During the conflict, at least in the English language literature we have about soldiers returning from war with various forms of shell shock that included symptoms like stuttering, stammering, nightmares, night terrors, sleeplessness, 
Some people became very aggressive and, and hostile and violent. Others were cowering in fear as if they were having horrible hallucinations and, and everything in between. Some people, I'm sure, suffered horrible mental anguish, but it wasn't readily apparent on their outside person. So even though Germans may not have used the actual term shell shock because that was a English language word to describe the many, many forms of psychological and physical damage that people would return from war with, that certainly existed on the German side. Young German men that went into the conflict were experiencing the same kind of conditions for months and months at a time. The French began to rotate their troops a few weeks at the front lines and then a few weeks just behind the front lines, away from the shelling, and then they would be rotated back. That was one of the earliest examples of a large-scale military effort to stymie the effects of what would later be known as shell shock. Treatments for it, though, weren't very good. They ranged from just giving soldiers time to sleep or to hopefully have their symptoms go away on their own, and perhaps that did for some mild cases. Other treatments at the time did in fact include hypnosis. That wasn't considered wacky at the time, and so that has a direct connection to Babylon Berlin with Dr. Schmidt, who we see in the cold open of the show, and certainly will come back later, who seems to have a very modern psychological approach. And hypnosis wouldn't have been unheard of at that time. But there wasn't any good treatment for shell shock, in part because, as I mentioned earlier, it's a medically imprecise diagnosis. It, it covered so many different things, and the kind of therapy or drugs or whatever that might be needed for any one person was wildly varied. Now, the important part to know about shell shock is that during the war, it was seen as maybe a battle wound, a battle injury, uh, a badge of honor, perhaps even. And some people in the public, within English-speaking countries at least, were sympathetic toward these soldiers that had returned with these maladies because the war was ongoing. After the war ended in the time period we're in in Babylon, Berlin, men who were still suffering from this kind of thing were not seen in such a sympathetic light. That's the kind of Berlin, Germany that we are in right now in the context of this show. Those who suffered from shell shock might have been viewed later as either just insane or untrustworthy, or that they were somehow part of this stab-in-the-back myth of the many different parts of German society that underhandedly betrayed the German military and caused them to have to withdraw from the conflict even though they had not been defeated militarily. That sort of stab-in-the-back myth lays blame on many different people over time, including Jewish people and socialists and people in the moderate Weimar government, and perhaps also some Germans may have laid blame on those who were less than brave, like Bruno Walter might think. And so that's the boat that Gary and Raff is in, and it was a very real thing at that time. Opinions differed wildly about how to treat this and how to view the men who had come home with various different maladies. There's a lot of masculinity tied up in what it is to be a soldier and then what it is to be a police officer, which are not too far apart from one another. And one's masculinity gets caught up in this ability to control your emotions, this ability to serve when you're needed, this ability to stay strong, both as a soldier and as a cop. And I can see why Garion doesn't want people to know he has perhaps the secret weakness that he can't really control. The one thing I couldn't find in any meaningful literature was medicinal treatments for it. The fact that Garion takes this opiate-based medicine 
this like liquid heroin. That I didn't find anywhere. And it's okay if that's just a, you know, something that the show runners or show producers or show writers decided to include into the show to add character and depth and interest to uh, Gary and Raph's character. I'm fine with that. But I just noticed that that is not something that would have been pulled from popular history or known history about official appropriate treatments for the kind of PTSD that he's suffering from. I couldn't find anything like that. It's kind of curious why he would have gotten this laudanum in the first place. Like, did, yeah, how did, did someone he... prescribe it to him because they knew he had shell shock? Did he, like, try his friend's vial of laudanum and say, like, oh, this helps me relax? They haven't explained the backstory to that, but I'm willing to guess that it happened the way that many people start taking opiates. They have a terrible injury, probably from fighting in the war or something like that. You are prescribed painkillers of the day and you realize, hey, when I'm taking these, it calms my nerves a great deal and I'm feeling a lot better. And that could quickly lead to the kind of addiction that Garion seems to be involved in. We haven't seen him struggle with it as if it is an addiction yet, but knowing what we know about opiates, probably has an addiction. That's a great point about, you know, being prescribed for maybe a physical ailment and then using it for non-physical ailments. So I think I mentioned before that episode two is my favorite episode, at least of season one. And it mainly has to do with the final scene at the Mocha FD Cafe where we get Zuash Zustab. Zuash Zustab is the juiciest lacquer basin. The moist. I read that this scene, the song and dance routine of Juas Justab, took four days to film. I can understand why. There's an enormous amount of extras involved. There were a lot of different camera angles. It was shot like a music video. And I imagine that they had a lot of takes they needed to scrap with people, you know, getting the dances wrong or whatever else. And the dance scene, I didn't like at first. The first time I watched this, I did not like that dance scene. But the more I've watched it, which now has been like five or six times, it's phenomenal. And it's not so complex that people couldn't have learned this just out on you know every friday night at the mocha fd it is simple enough and short enough a dance that it's feasible to believe the regulars at the mocha fd would know it yeah this last scene which is really the splicing together of several different scenes and storylines to me it's like a master class in making a tv episode because it's visceral for the viewer you feel sort of like the rise of the crescendo of the actual music and dance that you're seeing and this sort of peaking of the plots of this episode oh yeah i didn't know when we first watched the show that this song is not an old song. I had kind of assumed wrongly that it was a classic of the era and they were just taking a new modern spin on some song from the late 1920s in Germany. That's not the case. The musical style would have existed at that time. This sort of like big band jazz style and the drum solo were all staples of big band music from 1923, 24 onward. But the music and lyrics for this song were written in 2017, 2018, including by Tom Tickwer, one of the three directors and showrunners of the show, as well as a man named Nico Weiderman, who we don't see in the show, but he performs it live with something they call the Mocha FD Orchestra now, has like toured Europe with the actress that plays Svetlana. Her name is Severia, but they perform this live because it is like a hit, a smash hit. Right before we recorded this podcast, Leslie and I watched uh, the Mocha FD Orchestra and Severia, I think is how you say her name, perform this at the 2018 GQ Man of the Year Awards where she was awarded Song of the Year. This was Song of the Year, according to GQ in Germany, in 2018. 
A friend of ours who's not on this podcast and wants to remain nameless also pointed out that this was the first major queer character. Svetlana is dressed as a man. I think it's clear that her stage persona is a man. So what I don't really understand is whether everyone knows that she's a woman dressed as a man or do people think that Nikaros is... A, per, a real person who's a man. My guess, and this is certainly a guess, is that we are to believe the characters in the show and the audience in the Boca FD fully understand that this is a woman on stage performing as a man and that that is not weird, just like it may not have been weird to go see a David Bowie concert. I agree completely. I'm getting that vibe too because the whole show is kind of presenting all of these different advances and culture and society. We will talk about this sort of thing, like the sort of new age embracing of different sexualities that did actually occur amongst at least some segment of society in Berlin at this time in future episodes of the podcast. Uh, but just to, to dip my toe in it real quick, there was an institute for the study of human sexuality in Berlin at this time and before the Nazis kind of threw a wet blanket on that sort of research and that sort of publishing. But it wouldn't have been unheard of if you were interested to read about it. Things like homosexuality, things like what we would now call different gender identities. And I think that in the context of the Mocha FD Cafe, it's interesting to the audience that this woman performs as a man, perhaps on a weekly basis or a nightly basis, because they clearly know this song and they love it. And they know this dance and they love it. So I can only assume they know. Yeah, and I, I, the characters in the show, you know, they don't think twice about it. Yeah, I think of this as like Dennis Rodman in a dress. I don't know who that is. Dennis Rodman for the Chicago Bulls, famous NBA basketball player who had an outlandish and wild on and off court persona. Ear piercings. Oh yeah, and a nose piercing. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Okay. I know who that is. I feel like Psycho Negros has a sort of Dennis Rodman or Prince energy. Ooh, good Prince energy. Yeah. A little bit more intense, but. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> German Prince. My favorite dance move during Zu Ass, Zu Staub, which I don't know if this is based on any kind of like Martha Graham style modern dance of the actual era. But when Svetlana turns to the left and then turns to the right in the early portion of the song, when we first get a view of her admirer, Neeson, she is raising her hand to her mouth one after another as if she's a magician pulling an infinite scarf out of her mouth, sort of. I don't know. That just stood out to me and I can't stop ever thinking about it. I imagine that she's like a chipmunk who's just like shoving nuts into her cheeks for story. Oh my god, wow. Tell me more about the symbolism. Because she's just like pulling something from the air into her mouth over and over. You're right. I always see it as her pulling something out, but you're right. She's she's pushing something in. in. I also love that dance move, if we'll call it that, but for a different reason. I love it because... (laughs) While she's doing this bizarre, at least to us, dance move, her lover, Neeson, is just like chewing his bottom lip, just like really fucking into it. I have to say she's pretty sexy with that mustache, even though in the lighting she's in, she looks a bit like a corpse. Like her skin tone is really rough and she's sweating profusely. She looks good. She rocks a good mustache. She looks good and her her persona is such that we as the audience know that she's the hot shit. So sexy. She's making like vicious eye contact with everyone in the audience. <laughs> I'm not the first or the last person to say this about this song. This is not an original thought. But the fact that the show plays the song and 
also plays audio from the ambient audience in the Mocha FD enhances that scene so much. And I think it's easy to say that that's a good choice, but I don't know that I would have made that choice. You can get cleaner audio by just playing the song, but we get to hear the murmurs of audience members in the Mocha FD singing along and saying some of the opening lyrics. And it helps to sell the fact that you're not just at a performance, you're at like a big party and that everybody has seen this show before. And it makes sense that Charlotte rushes up to the front of the stage when they see Nikaros come on stage because she knows what's about to happen. She knows she wants to be up front for the dance. That part is great and I think makes the scene much more rich than if we were just played the song to the lip movements of Svetlana while everyone else was in silence. I'm glad they traded audio quality for richness. The last thing I'll say about Joao's Justab, because I could talk about this forever, is I like that the audience in the club can be seen dancing around with people as young as Yannick and as young as, or Stefan and as young as Charlotte and Rudy, fucking Rudy. The true villain. They're all out having like drinks and wearing nice clothing and out dancing at night but we know full well half or more of the city is just like hoping to get a slice of sausage baby i mean things are desperate out there but folks that do have a job and do have a little money are pursuing that nightlife it is hard to imagine a world so rough and so destitute where some people enough people to fill an entire club are willing to just dance the night away to escape their day-to-day humdrum lives is all i can think so our main heroine charlotte kind of ties these two worlds of berlin together she is one of those destitute poor folk giant to get a slice of sausage and she's out dancing the night away at the mocha fd cafe entertaining different suitors in her one dress her one sparkly dress in her one sparkly dress but why is she actually there girl is 20 marks short on her rent she making that money i didn't see this coming no i didn't either no so the director's and writers kind of plant the seeds for Charlotte's nighttime activities in episode one. So just a reminder, in episode one, Charlotte comes home from what we know now would have been a night out at the Mocha FD Cafe. She's just kind of getting herself ready for her day job and chatting with her sister, Tony. And she gives Tony a yellow piece of candy, which at the time in episode one, I at least was not thinking anything about that piece of candy. No, me either. And Tony says, oh, yellow. I've never had this color before. Again, I didn't think much about it at the time. But in episode two, we see a wealthy man dressed in a tailed tuxedo slides a blue Mocha FD candy over to a waiter who then brings it to Charlotte. Charlotte eyeballs this man and seems to give a nod of approval. Yeah, let's go. So we learn that this candy exchange is essentially a code for soliciting some sort of sexual acts. And I think it makes a fascinating plot point. But this is one of those leaker beasts and one of those tantalizing tidbits that I did a little deep dive into because that code language for soliciting sex was a real thing in Berlin, Germany. Yeah, so the type of candy, the color of candy, is the way for a client to say, I want that girl, so I'm going to give her the candy, and because I've given her the blue or the red or the green or the yellow, that's going to tell her what kind of sexual situation I want her to engage in and 
the thought is Charlotte just says yes or no to that particular person and that particular situation, we find at the end of episode two that blue must mean that this man wants to be sexually dominated by Charlotte Ritter. She is fucking down for it. She's down. She's 20 marks short on rent. Gotta get it somewhere. And in the first episode when we see Charlotte give Tony the yellow candy, very subtly shortly after that, Tony points out this bruise on Charlotte's neck. And Tony mentions that she's never had the yellow candy before, which indicates that maybe Charlotte tried something new that night. So let's talk a little bit more about this sexual commerce that we see going on at the Mocha FD Cafe because this is something that actually happened in Berlin. And we mentioned in episode one of this podcast this idea that gets presented in episode one of everyone wants in Berlin, which means that people come to Berlin intentionally to let loose, let their hair down. And Berlin at the time was known as a sex tourism destination. So interesting enough though, commercial sex was technically illegal, but everyone kind of let it go. And women and men and everything in between were allowed to engage in sexual commerce or sexual tourism, sex work under two stipulations. They could not verbally solicit their services, nor could they use print advertising. Okay, so you couldn't hand someone a business card that says like, hey, 20 marks, let's do this. So this led to sex workers using an unspoken, unprinted method of communication. And it mostly had to do with the clothing that the sex worker would wear. And this is mainly for sex workers kind of just like prowling the street at night, trying to tell clients what they are and are not willing to do. And something I find really interesting is that the most common method of communication was the color of the boots that a woman in this case, in most cases, would wear. The color of their boots? The color of the boots. So Dan, pick a color, any color. Let's talk about green. So green boots meant psychological enslavement. Holy shit. So your woman's out there on the street wearing her green boots and you pick her up for a little psychological enslavement. That is way more detailed than I would expect people to be prowling for sex work for. So like If anything is an option, I guess people are eventually going to get adventurous and try some kinky weird stuff. Yeah, and some of it was as simple as a woman wearing a certain hat meant that she was into something as innocent as maybe blowjobs or, I don't know, vaginal intercourse. Yeah, some normal stuff, some middle-of-the-road stuff. <laughs> but the the nuances of sexual fetishes runs deep and thick, so they had to get really creative with what props they would wear, what boot colors they would wear to tell people what they were or were not into. And here's something that I've learned from a little mild research into entrepreneurial marketing. You want to find a niche. Oh, yeah. So these girls, and I say girls because based on the research that I read, it was mainly women who were using these specific ways of code 
communicating with their clients. Although there were certainly men engaging with other men, it just wasn't perhaps as nuanced in the different ways in which it was publicly advertised because there may have been a bigger, more diverse market for women in this sex work trade. Absolutely, absolutely. So maybe these women were into a couple of different of these sort of niche fetishes, but when they were getting ready for their evening, they had to pick a boot color and the boot color would tell their clients what they were willing to do that night. And they were kind of committed to it. So for example, if you wore your black boots, then you were into buttocks cropping. You're willing to whip your client. Ooh, but what if I want to whip you? Okay, that would be either lacquered gold boots, which would mean physical torture. Yikes. Or they might do something like maroon shoelaces, which meant verbal humiliation. Woof. I can only imagine the misunderstandings upon choosing the wrong outfit as someone who's just trying to go out late at night and get a bite to eat. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just out for the schnitzel. I look, these are the only boots that were dry. (laughs) Finish your thought there. I will. Okay, so imagine the dilemma if you're just out to get, you know, a a prostitute for the evening for some just casual, normal, missionary style sex. And then you accidentally pick up a woman who happened to be in boots with white laces and her niche fetish is to treat you like a dog and put you in a collar. What a misunderstanding that would be. And that's kind of like what happened in Charlotte Ritter's case at the end of episode two. It that was kind a of little situation. dub song. No, sub dom. A little sub dom. Not to be confused with a dub song (laughs) popular in Europe a hundred years later so this would have been true like what's going down at the Mocha FD cafe down in that sort of sex dungeon the brothel underneath the club yeah and the the specificity really opened my apparently naive eyes into what some people were into so not only was there this code communication based on what a sex worker would be wearing but there were also very specific times and places where you would go to solicit sex from a very specific type of person so there were categories of sex workers so for example there was like a niche of specifically jewish sex workers there was a niche of tiny people oh really no let me i got petite folks yeah Really petite. Very petite people. Yeah, tiny, tiny, small, petite people. And similarly, there was a whole niche for, we'll say, underaged gals. Ooh, wow. I should have seen that coming. Yeah. 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 I bet there was a niche for that. If I thought you were going to say there was a niche for thick girls, and I was like, yeah, of course. And interestingly, though, this is the one that I guess stood out to me, because we see Charlotte, she's doing what she does because she feels like she has to. She's got to bring home the sausage in this case. But there were actually a group of like affluent young women who were just like bored with their very domestic affluent lives who would also work as sex workers like for funsies. Wow. I would not have expected that. No. That's so different than the kind of view we have of sex work in America now, especially where it's illegal, where it's seen as like purely something corrupt, purely something out of desperation, purely something that is usually exploitative. Exactly. And that's probably why I was so fascinated with this because Charlotte, I mean, let's face it, all of our characters have some flaws. 
But Charlotte's is not that she's a sex worker. No. She's not ashamed of it. No. I mean, does she want to be doing it? To be determined. But she's definitely not ashamed of it. And she's doing what she has to do. And, you know, she's she's a professional. Yeah. Consummate pro. Yeah. That's for sure. I like that they show her holding a candle over that man. And then she blows it out just as that scene is ending. I assume she drips wax all over this guy. (laughs) Hot wax all over this guy. I don't know. I did not think about that before, but I can... about getting hot wax in your chest hair oh that would suck that must that must be unfortunate how do you explain that to your wife i shave my chest hair so i wouldn't know i want our listeners to know that leslie has a perfectly smooth chest she keeps it shaved and that's the way it should be i shave it twice a day twice a day to make sure that she never gets a five o'clock shadow (laughs) yeah all right and that's a wrap i'm definitely keeping that button (laughs) That's it for today, folks. Thanks for listening to The Deal Presents Bubble on Berlin. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning on. If you like what you've heard here today, then tell your friends, tell your enemies, heck, even tell your local vice squad. <laughs> Look for us on social medias, and if you have any comments or want to call us out about something, you can email us at thedealpresents at gmail.com. Bubble on Berlin.